just the last uh, few weeks, I was thinking about uh, for Thanksgiving, I got to go uh, to Texas. Uh, all my family is in Texas, and so we got to take a trip and go there. And it was wonderful to get to see my immediate family, but then I got to see several of my cousins. And uh, one night that I was there, my brother, uh, my younger brother Jeremiah and I got to go over and visit my cousin. And so one of my cousins, my cousin Ted, is about a year younger than I am. Obviously, I've known him my whole life. Uh, We jokingly refer to Ted as a super cousin because his mother and my mother are identical twins. And so... Quite literally, uh, our mothers are genetically identical. And so in a lot of ways, Ted's like a, a half-brother. And so we've been very close with him for a, for a long, long time. And so my brother Jeremiah and I got to go over to Ted's house, and we sat in his backyard with his family around a fire pit and laughed and talked and reminisced and, and all, all that goes with that. But during that time, uh, Ted said to, to my brother and I, he said, you know, this is, this is really great. This is so great that we get to do this together. I mean, how, he said, how many people could we sit down like this, have not spent time together in years, and immediately pick up and have these conversations and all this stuff? And I was like, he's right. It's incredible. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to have those relationships. And the reason we could do that is just because of the many years and the time invested and the times that are there and all those things and that shared history. And so I say that just to say, I, I hope you have relationships like that in your life. I hope you go, yes, I know exactly what you mean. I I hope uh, in the last week that happened, that there were different people in your life that you sit down with and you're sharing deep conversations and remembering things and rejoicing together. But then I'd also say to you, I hope that you have people like that in your church family, in your local church, that you have people invested in your life, that you sit down and you have conversations like that. And you laugh together and you cry together and you encourage one another and you have those deep relationships Because when God saves us, he saves us into a family of faith. He saves us into, we're adopted back into his family. And we now inherit brothers and sisters all over the world. But we also, as we talked about last week, come together with our local body. Those that we give ourselves to. And we are a family now. We have this connection in Jesus that is so great. And so what we were talking about last week, and we started, and so we're just going to do for the month of January is we're thinking about our church covenant, what we're called to be as a local church. And so we're, we're working our way through our church covenant, but then showing where those things are in Scripture. We believe everything that's in our church covenant is clearly commanded by God in Scripture, and that's why it's in there. Our church covenant is just a way of saying a promise. A covenant's a promise that we're making to one another it's the body of Christ, that we've, we've come into God's family, and then we're going to give ourselves to one another. And so last week, we talked about uh, the importance of pursuing holiness and the unity of the body. And we looked at that in John 17 as Jesus prays for us. And he prays that, that we would have this unity together, and he prays that we would be uh, in the world but not of it, that we would be called out to him. And, and what we talked about is that's exactly what our church covenant says, that we're going to give up ourselves to him, to Jesus. And we're going to pursue uh, unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And that's the first two lines in our church covenant, holiness and unity. And today I want us just to continue to look at what our church covenant says. You'll find it in your seat there this week. Uh, If you're watching online, it's actually on our website under the belief section. You can go. It's right there. You can look at it with us. Or you can just listen because I'm going to read the part we're going to look at to you. But what we're going to look at today is the importance of assembling together and spending time together. And we say that in our church covenant. And so if you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read the first six lines. 
And we're going to spend most of our time uh, looking at three, the third, the fourth, and the sixth line. And we're going to look at how that we see that in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. But let's first just read those first six lines together. Having, as we trust, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to give up ourselves to him and have been baptized being having been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We do now relying on his gracious aid solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the spirit and the bonds of peace. That's what we looked at last week. Those first two. But then the third line says we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise in an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasions may, as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up such as may at any time be under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. And we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. And so, like I said, we're going to really look at three, uh, four, and six there lines. And, And the big idea is simply this, that we are called into God's family and we are called to not neglect uh, sharing our lives together, assembling together for corporate worship, but not only that, going deeper than that and having deep relationships with those that God has saved us into this community of faith. And the way I want us to look at it is we're going to look at those two points, not neglecting to meet together in a larger gathering, but also going deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer, as we say here at CODA. But the first thing I want to do before we look at those two points is simply this. Why we say this is so important and how we get this from the way Jesus made disciples. Uh, I said last week, and I'll continue to say probably every week we gather, but we have one mission as a church, and it's to make disciples who make disciples. It's the mission that Jesus gave us. And so we say discipleship is growing in obedience to Jesus in every area of our life. As we come to faith, we're discipled to faith. And then from faith to maturity as we continue to grow in our relationship and our identity of who we are in Jesus. And that's our mission as a church. And so when we talk about that, we want to see how as disciples of Jesus, and hopefully this makes perfect sense, is we want to seek to be disciples of Jesus. We would do discipleship the way Jesus did. We would look to Jesus as the perfect disciple maker. We would look to him for our philosophy of ministry and the way that we operate. And so I I touched on this last week, but it's important that we go back to it and just think about it for just a second. That if we want to be like Jesus in every way, we want to be obedient to him. We want to be living out of this identity that we now have in Christ. We would seek to make disciples the way Jesus makes disciples. And so when Jesus made disciples, if you read through the Gospels that show us uh, Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you start to read into that and you see what is Jesus doing as he makes disciples. And what you'll find is, is he calls people to himself and he says, come and follow me. And he says this over and over and he invites people in to come follow him and be with him and learn from him as he does that. Now, you also see, if you look closely in the Gospels, Jesus goes from town to town and he goes to different places and there's large assemblies and he teaches and preaches and there's tons of people there and they're crowding in to hear them. But then we said last week that he calls some, the 12 disciples, to come away with him and to go deeper. And even then, from the 12, he'll go deeper with the three, Peter, James, and John. Uh, I'm thinking of like uh, the transfiguration, 
when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him, and he says, you three come with me. And so what we see is Jesus has great crowds. He has many disciples, more than just the 12, but that he calls the 12 to himself, and he spends more time with them, and he's investing in them. And then even out of that, he goes deeper with the three. And so what we say here in discipleship at Church of the Apostles is deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer. And I think we get that very clearly from the way Jesus made disciples. But what I want you to think about for just a second when we say that's our philosophy of ministry and that's what we want to be doing and that's what we want to be calling people into as we seek discipleship. I want you just to think for a second of the brilliance of what Jesus was doing. As the greatest teacher, as the greatest disciple maker, when he calls people out to himself and he brings the twelve and he's equipping them to then turn and send them out to go make disciples. And what happens is as you're preparing people to then go make disciples, you're being a disciple, but you're growing so that you can make disciples. And so we say disciples who are making disciples. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so when you think about how that happens and how that works, uh, maybe go back to when you're in school. I remember at different times having teachers saying, teaching you something on the board. They're showing, I'm going to show you a uh, math class. I'm going to show you this equation. And in just a second, I'm going to call on somebody to come up here and then you're going to do one. What would happen as you saw that? Or for me anyway, I go, oh, no, I better pay attention. I better know what he's going to say because I don't want to be embarrassed that I don't have a clue how to do this. And so when you know you're going to turn around and do the same thing, suddenly learning changes. Uh, I'll give you an even better example. My, my wife, Joanna, is a pediatrician. She's a doctor. Uh, after school, she went to med school for four years to get her, her doctorate degree. But then to be practicing pediatrician, you then have to go to residency for three years. And so Joanna goes to school for, for four years after college, has all this learning, but then you go into your residency. And what they would do in your residency is you're now learning how to practice this, to actually do it. You have the knowledge, but you've not done a lot of these things. And so one of the things they would say in her residency program was this, that you see one, you do one, you teach one. And so you've never put an IV in and you go in with another doctor and they go, I'm going to show you how to do this. And they show you and then they say, OK, now next time when we come in here, you're going to do it and I'm going to be here to help. And then you do one and you've learned it and now you've had the experience of doing it. And they say, great, now next time you're going to teach it to somebody else. And that's the way you learned by, by not just seeing, but then doing and then equipping others to do. And that's what Jesus was doing with his disciples, going deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer, equipping them for the work of the ministry and then sending them out to make disciples. And we learn exponentially more by doing so. By the way, that's exactly what Scripture tells us we're to be as a church. The leaders in the church are to equip the saints. By the way, you're a saint if you're in Jesus. You have his righteousness. You're perfect in God's sight because of who you are in Christ, not by your righteousness, but by Jesus. You're the saints. And we're called as leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is to make disciples. And so when we do that, we grow exponentially, but not just in our own growing, but think about the things that we can then reach. Uh, I think most of you probably know who Billy Graham is. If you don't, he's one of the greatest evangelist uh, he passed away a few years ago but billy graham would go and do these great big crusades and he would clearly preach the gospel and if you've ever heard billy graham speak he's very simple and he's a great speaker but simple in his message calling to repentance it's all jesus and what he's done and he would go and he'd open the scriptures and he would clearly proclaim jesus and what would happen is people would come to faith they would come and they would say i need a savior 
And they would profess faith. And they would, as we say here, transfer their trust from themselves to Jesus and what he's done for them. And people would come to faith. But Billy Graham saw very quickly that he would go town to town. And sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of people would come to faith. And he quickly saw that this is not the fullness of discipleship. I'm helping disciple them to faith, but they now need to be discipled that they would grow. And so he went to his friend, a man named Dawson Trotman, and he said, I need your help. I need to disciple these people. They're coming to faith and they're truly being saved and they're being transformed by God's word. But they now need to be discipled into maturity. And he tasked his friend who cared deeply about discipleship to help him. And so Trotman quickly realized that there was no way that he alone could disciple all these people. And so he started to get connected with local churches and he started to equip them to disciple those people. He made disciples to make disciples. And when he would talk about discipleship, he would talk about the exponential growth of what happens when we make disciples who make disciples. And he would always tell this example. He actually wrote a little booklet uh, about discipleship, and he tells it in there as well. But he would always use this example. He said, imagine that you've got like uh, two guys, and they go, or two ladies, and they go get two ladies or two guys, and they start to disciple them. And every year they go, and that multiplies. And so we go from two to four to eight, and then they go, and for every year they start to multiply. And he quickly would do this thing. He'd give you this example. And he'd say, at the end of uh, a year, you have four and then 16. And then after that, you would go to 64 because they're, they're dividing every time and they're doing this over and over. And he'd say, after five years, if they're every six months they're going and they're multiplying and they're doing this, after five years, you'll have 1,024 disciples. And so they're still being discipled by the person who was discipling them, but then they're making disciples. He says, after 15 years of multiplication like that, 15 and a half years, you'll have 2.2 million people. And he would use that example just to say this, that, that when you look at it, that the way Jesus was teaching disciples to make disciples, that there's exponential growth in that. Any one person has a limited capacity of people they can spend time with and they can do. And so when God says that we are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, we go deeper with fewer to make disciples so that they then can make disciples, we'll reach far more people in doing that. And so as a, as a church, when we talk about our philosophy of ministry, we, we get that directly from Jesus and the way he made disciples and then what it tells us in the New Testament about how to continue to make disciples. And so when we think about that, there's an importance, though, of us spending time together, not neglecting meeting together. And so I want us just to look at Hebrews chapter 10 together for a minute, because it tells us clearly this in Hebrews 10. Sometimes when we jump into a book of the Bible, it can be difficult because we're just we're parachuting into Hebrews chapter 10. It's like, well, what's going on in Hebrews and how do we get there? Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible. If I were to summarize big picture of what Hebrews is, it's a sermon letter written to the early church that's struggling. And they're struggling with just being tired and overwhelmed and all the things of the world. And this letter is written to encourage them to rest in Jesus. And so in a lot of ways you can summarize Hebrews like this. It's a journey from weariness to rest. And the way the author does that brings us from this weariness to rest is to remind us that Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's better than the temple. He's better than the sacrifices. He's all those things, the fulfillment of them. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. 
And so we move from weariness to rest by saying Jesus is better. And so as we read through Hebrews, we get to chapter 10, and he's talking about how Jesus is the better sacrifice. The better sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. If you look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 11, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I want you to look at that verse for just a second, verse 14. By a single sacrifice, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, those who are being sanctified that are still in process. Right? And so when we think of justification and sanctification. When you put your faith in Christ, you are now in him and God gives you his righteousness and you are good with God. And you are secure in that. Our sanctification or our discipleship is now living that out. Right? And so he says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We're still in process. And so we are secure in Jesus We are good with God. We have this relationship. He is the sacrifice that ends all sacrifices, but we're still in process of living that out in our lives. With that in mind, look at what it says in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with a pure water. And I'll stop there for just a second. He says, we now can come directly to God. We have direct access to God because of what Jesus has done. If you know about the Old Testament priesthood and the temple and the way they made sacrifices, they're pointing to that here. Most people believe Hebrews was written in the 60s while the temple is still functioning, even though that Jesus has finished his work. And he's reminding them that all of that points to Jesus. But what it says here, he says that now uh, he has opened for us through the curtain, right? And so in the temple, you couldn't go in the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt. You couldn't come in there. If you did, you'd be struck dead immediately as a sinful person trying to enter the presence of a holy God. But he says, now through Jesus and this final sacrifice and his blood, he's opened a way through the curtain. You have direct access to God because of what Christ has done. You have this relationship. And he says, you now have this full assurance of faith because Jesus has taken your sin. He has done for you what you could never do for yourself. When you transfer your trust to him rather than yourself, you now have access. You now have God's righteousness for you through what Jesus has done. And so we can come directly into it. And so that's a beautiful uh, reminder. It's a a wonderful assurance and promise that it's all Jesus. But I want you to look at the very next thing he says. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again. There's no neutral in discipleship. We're constantly being discipled by our culture. We're constantly being discipled by all the messages that we're bombarded with at all times. There's no neutral. 
And so as we think about working out our sanctification, it calls us, he reminds us here, the, the author of Hebrews reminds us that we have this full assurance in Jesus, but then the very next thing is, don't neglect meeting together. Stir one another up. Continue to spur each other on. There's an importance of continuing to be connected to the body of Christ in all things, because we're going to be discipled by our culture and the things around us. And we desperately need one another in that. And so he calls us not to neglect meeting together. But here's the hard part within the church. And it happens a lot. We read like verses 19 to 23. And we have this full assurance and it's all Jesus. And we can do it. Or we can't do it. He's already done it. And then we use that as an excuse to not do verses 24 and 25. I'm good. It's all grace. Jesus has done it. So I'm just going to coast. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great pastor in Nazi Germany, died as a young man giving his life to fight against the things that were happening in Nazi Germany. And he stayed in Germany because of everybody was trying to get out. And he said, no, these are my people and I'm going to stay here. And he talked about discipleship and what it means. And he would say, when we just kind of coast like that, I'm good and I got it and now I'm going to coast. He would say that's cheap grace. That we're embracing not the fullness of who we are in Christ. And so last week we said we're called to holiness because of what Jesus has done for us. He's called us out of that. And we said we're not our own. We belong to God and Jesus is worth it because of what he's done for us. And he calls us into these deep relationships to give ourselves to one another. And so what happens though is we, we, we embrace cheap grace. I can kind of do whatever I want. Once saved, always saved. I've got it. I'm good now. And so then we start to coast. But the truth is, if if we're really, really blessed, if we're really fortunate, we get maybe 80, 85, maybe 90 years. If you're one in a thousand, it's one in 1500, you might live to be 100. Maybe. We get this speck of time in the scope of eternity. And the idea that we would just coast that out goes directly against what God's word says. If you turn one page over to Hebrews 12, it'll tell you that. Let us run this race with endurance, looking to the author and perfecter of our faith, to Jesus. Don't grow weary. Continue to run this race and to seek him. Don't coast. And so there's a warning here, though. And I I want us to, to feel the weight of God's word, but also want us to be careful in the way we see it. But the very next thing he says, there's a very serious warning in this passage in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without the mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine and I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And he says, you hear the gospel and you go, Yeah, I'm saved and I got that. And then nothing in your life changes. There's no change. And you go on sinning. You go on doing the things that you know God calls you out of. And you do it over and over again. And you don't care. 
And you just continue to do it. What scripture says, if that is the marker of your life, you don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Not only that, it says that you probably don't have a saving faith at that, if that is the fruit of your life. If there's no fruit, you don't get it. You don't understand. And so that idea that Bonhoeffer would talk about, about cheap grace, there's a thin line there between the person who just doesn't understand who Jesus is. That there's been no change in their life. Now, I always want to be careful to say, that is the clear warning of Scripture. But I also want us to to be reminded that when you become a believer, it doesn't mean everything perfectly snaps into place. It doesn't mean there's no more sin in your life the moment you accept Christ. The moment you transfer your trust from yourself to Jesus, it's not like it all goes away. It doesn't mean there won't be times when you sin in your life. But what this is talking about is that there's no evidence of faith in your life and the way that you're living. That there should be a fearful expectation. And so it's important for us to gather together, to remind one another, to hear God's word, to sing his praises, to do those things that, it calls, that he calls us to. A couple of years ago, I read a book by a guy named uh, James K.A. Smith, and it was called You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. And he said in this book, the importance, uh, the way he talked about it was the importance of liturgy in your life, repeated things that you do with a purpose, And a lot of what he talked about was the importance of gathering together for worship and singing God's praises and taking communion together and hearing the preaching of God's word. And I'll confess, as I read the book, as a pastor, it bugged me a little bit. Not not that I disagreed with him. I, I agreed with what he said. But I remember reading it and thinking, yes, but discipleship is more than Sunday morning. And as I was reading it, I'm debating with him in my mind. He keeps making everything about liturgy and what we do on Sunday morning. And he keeps saying this. I'm going, yeah, but it's more than that. But I remember very vividly as I was reading that book and I was almost through with it. And it kind of hit me. Yes, it's more than that, but it's not less. And so when we embrace that idea of cheap grace and I don't really need to be around other people and it's not that important and I don't have to gather with the believers, that's not true. That is a lie. That goes the opposite of what God's Word says. And as I read that book and I thought about coming here and singing God's praises and coming to the table and taking communion and hearing God's Word and seeing other believers and hearing them sing, it dawned on me how incredibly transformative that is in my life. I was reading that book thinking, for 10 years, I'm here 50 weeks out of the year. Now, I'm not saying that from pride or look at me. And I'm he- This is my job. I get paid to do it. I'm here. Just as you go to your job every week and you show up every day, so do I. But it dawned on me as I read that book and I was thinking about it, what a gift it is. What a gift it is that I'm here every time this place is opened. That I get to gather over and over again with believers. And I get to hear them sing God's praises with me. And we get to hear from God's word and we get to be reminded of what is true. And how that changes you. And I remember reading that book and thinking what a change it's made in my life. Not just weekly, but cumulatively over time. I'll tell you, not only reading that book, but a a few weeks ago, Christmas Eve, I was home in bed sick. 
and I couldn't be here. And I watched it on my computer. Wasn't the same as being here. And I missed so much being here with God's people on Christmas Eve singing about Him coming and not to be able to be here. It was so hard. And I thought God calls us into that, not as like a duty of something you have to do, but because He loves you and He knows what's best for you. He knows the way He created you. And so when it says here, don't neglect meeting together, is the habit of some. He knows what He's talking about. And so I know right now it's a unique challenge. It's a weird time. And there's some people that don't feel comfortable to come into this building right now. And for some, it's a good reason. For some, if we're to search our hearts, maybe it's an excuse. That's between you and the Lord, and I'm not saying it's one or the other. But I will tell you that we are called to corporately worship. We're made for it. And whether it's here in this place on a Sunday morning right now, or you tune in and you're worshiping with us from afar... I would just encourage every one of us that that is what our church covenant says. And the reason our church covenant says that is because what God's word says, that we are called to not forsake the assembling together. And we desperately need that. It's how God's created us to be. We need it and Jesus is worth it. And so when we think about that, gathering together, but that's not the all. As we think about even what we say here in our church covenant, we will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as the occasion may acquire. Or in line six, we say we will rejoice at each other's happiness and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. That we are called to go deeper with fewer, just as Jesus calls us into that we see that in the way he makes disciples that it's not just coming together for corporate worship although that is important although we are called and commanded to sing his praises to hear the preaching of god's word to celebrate communion together all those things that god calls us into but it's not just that to go deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer means an investment an investment in other people You know, I I told you at the beginning of sitting around the campfire with my cousin and my brother and sharing those times. That doesn't happen in just an hour a week in passing. You never get to that place unless there's deeper invitation. Unless we're inviting people into our lives to spend more time together. And that's where discipleship happens. I had a friend years ago. and, And if you've been around the church for a while or we've spent time together in any kind of missional community or discipling relationship, you've probably heard me say this a bunch. But this idea of discipleship happens when there's, when there's deep invitation and there's high challenge. Invitation and challenge. And if you look at verse 25, it says, Don't neglect meeting together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And what that's saying is invitation. Don't neglect that invitation of, of spending time together. But then encourage one another all the more as the day is drawing near. That as things are falling apart around you, we need deeper and deeper relationships where we encourage one another. Invitation and challenge. Invitation just means inviting people into your life. You're going to have high invitation 
naturally with your family. You live with them. A lot of times we have invitation uh, with our neighbors, people that we see regularly, people we work with. If, if I look at my life, there's, there's high invitation in, uh, with my family, with my brother, with Luke and, and the elders here. We're, we're making time to spend time praying and seeking the Lord together. The same with a missional community or, or a smaller setting of a, like a DNA group with two or three guys. And we're sharing our lives together. And we start to make a time for that and we set that aside of this is going to be important and I'm going to do this. But then if discipleship's going to happen, it's not just hanging out and making small talk. It's then beginning to speak the truth to one another. To open the scriptures together to confess sin, to remind each other of who we are in Jesus, to spur one another on, as it talks about here, spurring one another on to good works, to continue to seek the Lord. And we need one another. We're created that way. And so it's not just on a Sunday morning for an hour. If the statistics are right, it says the average churchgoer comes for one hour on a Sunday morning once a month. The super committed comes twice a month. So two hours. You don't get to the place of high invitation and high challenge that leads to discipleship two hours hours a month in passing. It's going deeper and deeper with fewer and fewer the way Jesus made disciples. And he gives us that example and it's so important for each and every one of us. And so if you look at our church covenant and what we say we're promising to one another, we're saying we're not going to neglect to meet together. That we're going to admonish and encourage and entreat one another. That we're going to endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear one another's burdens and sorrows. That doesn't happen if we're just passing one hour once a month. I can't. And so God calls us to something far greater than that. And he's worth it. It's for your good and for his glory because he becomes that much more glorious when we're reminding each other of who he is and what he's done. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you for what you've done for us. And Jesus, we thank you that you have called us, uh, that you have saved us, that you have brought us into a family of faith, that we have a deeper connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ than anyone else in the world. And it's all because of what you've done and who you are. And so we pray that we would take seriously the things that you call us into for our good and your glory. I pray that we would see it more fully, that we would take steps in this new year to invest more deeply in one another, simply for the purpose of growing in our identity in you, that you would be glorified. That we would be a a shining light to the world around of what holiness and unity looks like. What loving one another and encouraging one another looks like. And in doing so, it would point people to how good and beautiful you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.